Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-owners and founders of Your Teen Media, the resource for raising tweens and teens. And today we are talking with Dr. Richard Chung about risk-taking behaviors in teens and what we can do to help teens avoid maybe overly risky risks. But before we talk to him, we're just going to talk about our relationship to risk. So I would say that um, I am not a physical risk taker. I heard someone talk, who knows when or who, and they said something about being in a family of huge risk takers, and they weren't one, but they decided to become like a risk taker for things that scared them. Not physical, not like flying, but like, I mean, like jumping and skydiving or whatever else, but like, you know, doing the things that get you outside your comfort zone. And that made me so happy to read because I was like, God, I'm so boring. I'm not a risk taker. Like if someone (laughs) says, hey, do you want to go ski the black diamond? It's like, why? No, no. And like, I think tennis now is a little bit of a risk for (laughs) someone (laughs) my age who broke a bunch of ankle bones and things. But I took that to heart. I love that so much. So my risk personally involves like, you know, public speaking or you know, I guess starting your teen, things that like in a million years, I never would have thought would have happened. How are you? I'm very similar. I might be a little bit more of a physical risk taker than you are. (laughs) We were just retelling this story of like doing something maybe 11, 12 years ago. We were at, um, I think the Atlantis, Atlantis, whatever that place is, with these crazy slides like over a spring break. Atlantis. And I remember being the boy, my boys at the time were like 12 and 10 or 13 and 11. And like, yeah, mom, let's go do this thing. And it wasn't the one you always see in the commercials, but it was this other thing. And you couldn't see what it looked like. So I'm online with them and I started looking at everybody, everybody standing in line. So I'm the only female for as far as the eye can see, 30 people. And it's teenage boys, a random dad, and me. So that already did not bode well. Like, I'm like, I am not the profile here. And my stomach is like in knots. And there's no turning back because all I've talked to them about is like going out of your comfort zone and trying things. So I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, this is the moment, right? So we're getting closer and closer. And as I get closer to like the entrance where, you know, and they're sending one person down at a time, all you can hear is, ah! you hear the echo of the screams. I'm like, oh my God. So I did this thing. It was this like demon drop or something. And you land in like this aquarium and it's beautiful. But I came up like gasping for air and it was beautiful. I never want to do it again. Like there is no part of me. Like, am I glad I did it? Yeah, I'm glad I didn't chicken out is how I would say it. I'm not glad I did it. (laughs) I put that a little bit in the controlled risk-taking. Like I feel like I would love my kids to take risk, every risk there is at an amusement park. It is so interesting because we, at least I do, I I am a big talker about like, go out of your comfort zone. That's where all the magic happens and don't stay. And when you get butterflies, that's a good thing. And then I'm like, oh, but don't do that. (laughs) It's kind of like, I'm such a hypocrite because I'm like you, like, I don't, I'm trying to think, I'm sitting here trying to think like, I don't even know what they do. And I'm probably two for three in terms of risk-taking in our family and I don't even know. I'd have to really like, I think I might even start a group text tonight. Like, okay, tell me what you've done. (laughs) Because I'm not even sure I know what they've done. 
I really believe that the conversation we had with Dr. Chung made me kind of try to get some like boundaries around what we're talking about because we know risk is good. We know risk is good, great for right. teenagers. It's an important mm-hmm. part of growing. And yet we say no to like seriously risky, <laughs> could end in death kind of. Yeah. But, but then there are people who are drawn to like risk that could end in death, but isn't like addiction. Like there are these mutations of like, people who want to drive fast. And so they go into race car driving. Well, you know, that seems like a, a high risk, but but we don't want you to do that in the normal world where cars are not supposed to right. be driving those speeds. So it's always kind of like this weird balance of like making sure the seatbelt is on to protect you as much as you can be protected. I don't know. That's how I always try to think of it. But then I think like, you know, when we went to Yosemite, as we were driving up, there was someone who was free climbing. I think that's what it's called. Oh, yeah. For like a free solo kind of thing. Yeah. And I couldn't watch and I couldn't not watch. And I just kept thinking, like, damn, this trip will be ruined if that guy falls. You know, like, I mean, forget <laughs> his life. But how about how scarred the rest of us will be watching it? I do have a little bit of a theory you've heard me say before where I think that the greatest, and maybe it's a little, just a lot of luck, the greatest opportunity for me as a parent and for their growth is always when I'm a little uncomfortable. <laughs> like, and that's even hard to define. You know, the you know the kid I have who's pushed me the most out of my comfort zone, it's always because I start off in this place where I'm super uncomfortable with what he's talking about. And then I'll be like, could you make a tweak? Like, could you do something to get me a little more comfortable? And he'll say like, okay, well, how about if I do this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm still not comfortable, but I appreciate that. <laughs> so like, it's getting me maybe a little bit closer. But like you said, maybe that's just how certain people tick. Look at the guy, the guy from Free Solo, right? They looked at his brain. His brain didn't register things that weren't like high octane activities, which is crazy. So it's like, you might have that kid. I might have that kid. I don't know. And it's like, you want, right? We sit here and talk about like, yeah, like do what makes you happy. <laughs> I don't know. It's so hard. Well, everything is a duality. Like, so everything is do what makes you happy. But if getting high on cocaine makes you happy, like <laughs> right. obviously not that. So there's there's extremes. There's a kid who does nothing and takes no risk that we worry about. And then there's the kid who's like doing things that they're illegal, first of all. And second of all, they're highly addictive. Although I would say some some would say like that euphoria of free of solo climbing is also euphoric for people who do it and equally as risky, maybe, I don't know. We have set up boundaries for raising our kids that involve no underage drinking, no no illicit drugs, like yeah. all of these things. And then we try to believe that we can control that. And then, you know, as we're having this conversation, I actually am so glad I don't have any kids at home anymore because I'm so super more confused than I was before we started the conversation. <laughs> Like, what What are we saying no to? What are we saying yes to? And at the end of the day, as they get older, we're not even invited into the, the conversation. Right. That's oh, wait, so let's, true. I have an idea. Let's get Hannah on for a second. Okay. Hello, I'm here and I'm recording. Yes. I'm closer well, to adolescence. I mean, and also just like a different perspective. You're hearing what we're talking about. I hope you, maybe you were listening. Yes. Maybe you were. <laughs> Putting on the yes, spot. Yes, I am. So were you, are you a risk taker? Like a physical risk taker? Um, not really, but I did think when, when Steph was just saying like, your parents like don't get invited into the conversation once you hit a certain age, I just got a giant tattoo on my leg the other day. 
<laughs> so I guess if you count that as a physical risk, like maybe that. But uh, I like didn't. My, I think my mom knew it was coming, but I like didn't tell her until after it happened. And I texted her and I was like, hey, I got this tattoo today. Like dot, 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 wanting to know if she would want to see it or not. <laughs> and she basically was like, cool. And then I just sent it to her anyway. And she was like, nice. <laughs> and I was like, you're not into it. Yeah, but, but also, she might have so been cool. Sorry. She might have been, what, what's the word that I heard that therapist say I should say when I'm really upset with my kid? <laughs> oh, oh, right. Nice. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and oh, she, got to, she got to text exactly. it without having you see her face or hear the tone of voice. That's yes, beautiful. Totally. That's a beautiful yes, story. Absolutely. Yes, thank you for sharing, Hannah. Thank you for your guest appearance. You are welcome. Thank you for inviting me. The thing that gives you like total butterflies and like <sighs> makes you regret saying yes. What's number one on your list, Steph? Makes me regret saying yes. You're saying like, go back to like things I've done? Like right now, someone calls you up. I'll tell you that whenever anyone asks me to speak publicly, I say yes. And every single time I have this, like, I would say probably a good week before where I'm saying to Dan, I'm torturing Dan with, why did I say yes? Why did I say yes? Why did I say yes? And then like the day of, I'm a mess. And then if it goes well, I have like a little bit of euphoria, like a little bit of probably Mm -hmm. what someone gets who does that physical thing. And then I forget how much I, I suffered before. So the last thing I'm listening, the, the last voice in my head is how much fun that was. And so I can rinse and repeat over and over again with that scenario. That's a good one. Okay, wait, I do have mine, but I haven't done it in a few years. So skiing, and I love to ski, but every time I go, I'm standing in line for the lift or whatever. And I'm like, am I an idiot? Like, this is it. This is how it ends. This, wow. Like, but at least my whole family's here and, you know, that'll be great. And maybe they'll have seen me and, you know, whatever, you know, God forbid she died lo- doing what she loved. And, but every time, like on that lift, my stomach is churning. My, I'm like, is there a bathroom on this lift? Like, do they make it? Like, I seriously, it's crazy. Every time. Well, I think everything we do is a cost-benefit analysis, right? Yes. So, so yes. we were at a wedding, in the, you know, not in the middle of COVID, kind of in that dip where it seemed like it might be okay to gather. <laughs> yes. And, and a friend of mine came oh, over. Oh, that day? <laughs> that day? Yeah, that day. Exactly. <laughs> and this, these people had already canceled a wedding. It was good they got uh, that day. Anyway, so this guy comes over, a friend of mine, and he's got a plate full of food. It was a buffet for one of the events over the weekend. And he, and he looks and he goes... If I die of COVID, it will have been worth it. So, you know, like we're, we're like literally walking around making risk assessments with every single thing we do. So true. That is so true. And you know what? It's funny. And the skiing thing is a great example because you sit here and you mitigate I'm glad risk. you feel like your example was a great example. No, no, of what you just said. <laughs> Sorry. Of what you just said. <laughs> because I feel like you could... Taking your family skiing, there isn't taking your family to Yosemite, right? So you could decide, like you said, you're making these decisions all the time and you could say, I'm not going to do any of those things. I mean, I always laugh because my most recent, like you give these examples of hikes, the last, when I hurt myself and I was, you know, out for a few months, no hiking, I fell in the parking lot. (laughs) I come off like a five hour trail, right? Really hard. And then trip on the way to the parking lot. So it's like, I didn't because your muscles were wobbly from your yeah, five maybe. Hour hike, yeah, five hour but the hike. point is, you could say, "Oh, shouldn't have gone hiking." That's what I could have done that in my shouldn't kitchen. Shouldn't have woken frankly. up this morning. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, how do we put life 
involved with this equation of like healthy risk and and how do we parent through this? Because I mean, I'm pretty old to still be wondering what that looks like. And I like I'm guessing my 17, 18 year old kids when they were that age were not having these profound discussions about the the cost benefit analysis. Well, hopefully Dr. Richard Chung is going to give us some good parameters and a deeper understanding of how we move forward with raising teenagers who are wired and deeply need risk. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Dr. Richard Chung is a specialist in adolescent and young adult medicine. His priority is to provide personalized care with the goal of promoting positive development and future success. Dr. Chung, thank you so much for being with us today. We spend our lives trying to mitigate risk. We put on a seatbelt, for example. And yet, when you have a teenager, it just seems like they're trying so hard to do the complete opposite of that. Um, they don't seem to have the adult fear of a negative outcome. Is is that true? Yeah, I think there's a few different things happening. So when you see a young person and they make a particular decision that you, you know, maybe hoped they wouldn't and, and there's a particular risk associated with that, there is some element of uh, different understanding and appreciation of that risk, certainly. And so a young person may not have complete information about all the implications of the thing that they just did. Or they may have that information, but they just may value that risk a little differently than you do based on your experience and, and everything else that you bring to bear. But I don't think it's just that as well. I do think that you know, maybe even more important is that young people are drawn into risks by the allure of it. This real strong focus in adolescence developmentally around something called sensation-seeking. This is this really intrinsic desire among adolescents to seek out novelty, excitement, uncertainty. And this is actually something that we consider developmentally normal, healthy, 
adaptive even, because it draws young people out to explore the world in a way that allows them to try and see how things work so that they can eventually become you know, the independent, capable adults that we hope they'll become, right? And so I do think there is something about maybe they have a muted uh, experience of that risk, and so they don't appreciate it as, as profoundly as you do, but maybe even more importantly, they're drawn into the risk or whatever we perceive as risk based on that sensation-seeking that they're they're after. It's kind of a terrifying response. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask you, is there any way to convince our middle school and high school kids to worry more about outcomes or at least consider our worry as parents? Is there any way to (laughs) convince them of that perspective? Or is that wishful thinking? Yeah, I think it's, no, I I think it's, I think it's totally appropriate to, to at least make sure they're fully informed, right? That they have good information in their heads to understand the realities of what's going on and the implications of the thing that they're considering. You know, we see young people all the time in clinic who have done things that have had negative health consequences and it actually turns out that they just didn't have good information, right? They, they were given misinformation or incomplete information. So at the very least, uh, we should inform them. But I think even more than that, as we all know, even as adults, we don't just act on head information, right? Facts and figures and that sort of thing, right? We're also driven by our heart and how that information sort of combines with uh, how we feel about things and the values that we hold. And so I think as parents, it's helpful to to give them good information, but then to also say, you know, this is what I would hope you would do with that information, and here's why. You know, remember as a family, like these are the things that we value, or these are the things I've even heard from you as a as a teenager that you say you care about, and this is how I, as your parents, sort of see this all coming together in in more of a positive and healthy way. And so, I do think giving them more information tying it in with uh, the broader constructs of what you as a family and the individual value, and then pointing out so that they can kind of see the risks involved and hoping that they, they run with that interpretation. The other piece is this, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, young people may be modulating the behaviors for the sake of their parents, right? So that, you know, hopefully, you know, my parents won't have to worry so much or struggle so much. And I do think that happens. You know, we see a lot of young people who have made different decisions or have not shared certain things because they were concerned about negatively in- impacting their parents, you know. Uh, oh, you know, I, I couldn't share it with them because I didn't want to burden them with that. And so I do think that young people have in mind their parents' anxieties and fears and concerns, and and that weighs on them pretty heavily oftentimes. All right. So it sounds like our our fear of risk is never going to align with our teenagers' lack of fear of risk. So I guess in some ways it's a little comforting to not think of our own particular child as being unusual, that it's part of development that they do this. But on the other hand, like, I want to get a good night's sleep. How do, I, how do we <laughs> reconcile those two inherent conflicts? Yeah, I think we all need a good night's sleep for sure. Um, and there's always going to be a little bit of that uncertainty. I mean, that's just... Uh, inherent to this time of life. I do think, again, what we can do as parents, as other caring adults, is to inform our young people, to try to protect them, right? To to put safeguards in place, at least to some extent, certainly when there's uh, real safety concerns involved. 
But within those bounds, giving them the freedom to take information, to interpret it, to take their sort of decisions and actions, and for better or for worse, to kind of learn along the way. That, that is a part of this, right? I think, you know, one common approach among parents is to just, you know, lock down, right? You know, uh, put a lot of safeguards in place, uh, a lot of rules and restrictions, and you know, a lot of that is so that we can sleep well at night and, and we know that, you know, we'll wake up in the morning and they're going to be unscathed or they're going to make it through adolescence unscathed. And, and I understand that, certainly. But there is also a downside to that, of course, as well, right? Because young people do need to stumble and fall. They need to have some of these uh, bumps in the road so that they can learn and develop and grow and, and evolve. The key, though, is to help them take certain risks that have potential positive outcomes but have only limited negative potential outcomes and not take those severe risks, right? So one, the ones that can truly have life-altering risks that we all want to avoid and actually teens themselves want to avoid as well. And so, you know, one side of this is to, to prevent certain risk-taking by informing them, by cautioning them, by putting rules to some extent and, and sort of, um, you know, boundaries around what they're able to do. But the other piece, recognizing, again, that this risk-taking is something that's, that's natural for them and actually adaptive and really positive, is to supplant some of those negative risks, that's that sensation-seeking that sometimes goes off the rails, with positive risks, right? So one of the things to recognize is that risk inherently is not either negative or positive. It can be either one or the other, but it isn't necessarily a negative thing. Risk is simply something that you do for which the outcome is uncertain, right? And so a negative risk, I think we would all agree, is, oh, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen if I smoke this thing that my friend just gave me, right? That's, that's what we would consider a negative risk because the likelihood of a positive outcome, you know, at least from our perspective, is pretty limited. But then, you know, I don't know what's going to happen if I try out for the musical or I don't know what's going to happen if I ask this person out on a date. These are risks as well, right? But these are what we would consider positive normative, healthy risks. And so the other part as parents is to give them as many opportunities for sensation seeking to do risky things with a lot of positive potential and very limited downside. How do we find a healthy place for that? You know, I think so much of this is about our fears as parents and, you know, keeping them. I have a friend who famously says she used to think she had all these values to instill in her kids. And then at some point she realized her goal was really just to keep them alive. And, you know, and I think it's, you know, we kind of snicker about it, but it's really true. And so is there a healthy place for some of that risk? The example you gave is a good one, but how about where we start moving in, you know, taking that step to try out for the musical, right? That's a good example of risk. But I think as parents, we're thinking about those other risks. (laughs) And is there a healthy place for that, for some of those behaviors we're we're so worried about? Yeah, I think there's, it sort of depends on the young person, I would say, in terms of what those potential positive risks might be. Because not every young person wants to try out for the musical, certainly, or whatever. And I think part of the challenge is that for so many young people, they grow up in environments where those options to take positive risks that will help them grow a sense of agency and responsibility uh, and efficacy in the world, like those things just aren't available, right? And so that sensation seeking has nowhere to go but to some of these more negative sort of risky behaviors. It really kind of comes back to the individual teen and understanding, you know, depending developmentally and age-wise where they are and understanding themselves, 
really figuring out, you know, what are they passionate about? What gives them joy? What is exciting? And then within those domains saying, okay, what are the novel things within that domain or the uncertain things in that domain or the, the op- opportunities to, to gain surprise? You know, those are the sensation-seeking th- things that teens are after. And it could be that if they're an athlete, certainly there's a lot that can happen in terms of pushing themselves to do more. Or if they're more academically inclined, you know, taking a harder course, whatever it might be. These aren't necessarily exciting or, you know, teens may not admit that these are, um, you know, things that, you know, excite them in that way. But these are also risks and, and can, to some extent, stat- satisfy that desire for sensation-seeking and novelty. I prefer the idea of, like, you know, that that free fall where we kind of have that euphoric feeling when you get to the bottom, like there's something so thrilling about it. I prefer a roller coaster to bungee jumping. So how do I, I, I mean, I might have a kid who inherently finds a hobby. Like they like climbing Half Dome at Yosemite. And I, and they maybe even want to do that for the rest of their lives. And I can't, I can't, I can't live with it. I don't want to know about it. How do we do that cost-benefit analysis when we're, we're starting within a different place of benefit? Yeah, that's tricky because, I mean, I think cl- climbing Half Dome, let's say, certainly sounds risky to me for sure. And, you know, the, the risks involved, of course, have everything to do with the person's preparation for the thing, right? And so if I were to go out there, the risk is, you know, 100% that something bad is going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, if a young person is, is at least prepared for the thing to some extent, um, maybe it's, it's not quite as much. But, I, you know, it's hard for me to say that that would be a negative risk, right? Because, you know, climbing something, I mean, and again, this is like an extreme example, of course, but, you know, accomplishing something like that, I think most of us would consider to be quite admirable and amazing, especially for a young person. <laughs> maybe not, maybe not you, Sue, but for another young person, right? Somebody that you don't, you're not responsible for, you might admire them from a distance. You know, <laughs> oh, that was pretty cool. And so, I mean, I think that's a little bit of a different category of risk, right? Because all right, well, um, let's just that, take it. Da- we'll take it down, and we'll do skydiving, where you're with <laughs> you're tethered to somebody who's an expert, right? Okay, sure, yeah. Uh-huh. But it still feels like maybe you don't need to do it. Well, I'd say at all, but like certainly, what if I if I'm paying for it, and um, and you're going like. There's a line here. So I went to the most extreme half dome, but like, let's take it back where the, the roller coaster feels like in a controlled environment for the same physical feeling. And the skydiving is something your kid is, is, you know, dreams of doing. And maybe one day we'll become a pilot. Like, you know, all right. Like le- they lead to other things. They're, they're that toddler who like stacks chairs to get to the highest point in your house and you're, you know, you you just cannot believe the risk that they not just are willing to take, but don't recognize. So that same thing happens in adolescence. Climbing something or, or jumping out of a, a plane, you know, those things probably won't happen, you know, on a whim, right? They're not going to happen in the heat of an emotional moment or they're not going to happen impulsively, right? So I think that's often where teens might get into trouble where they, you know, go from zero to 60 immediately because of an impulsive or emotional moment, right? And But something like that, very unlikely that that would happen, right? Very likely there's a graduated trajectory towards that, that risk, right? Um, like they would start with something smaller, obviously, over a period of time, and they would gradually prove 
to themselves, actually, most importantly, but also to you, that they're prepared for these next steps, right? And helping them think through what those things are. Not necessarily, you know, cutting off prematurely any aspirations towards something that you just kind of flinch at as a, as a parent, but saying, okay, you know, sure, if, if that's something you want to do, let's figure out how do we get there, right? Uh, step by step in a graduated fashion so that they're prepared, but then you also, in terms of your emotional reaction to that risk, can gradually become a, a, a sort of acclimated to the notion of them doing these sorts of things. But there's always a balance, right? You know, when we think about risk, it's not inherently bad. Any risk that we take is counterbalanced against the positive thing that we're hoping for, right? That's just kind of the nature of life, right? Imagine the young person's joy uh, after they complete their their uh, fall from the sky, you know? Do we want to necessarily uh, give up the potential for that thing uh, because of the theoretical risks? And it's, it's, you know, that's just the nature of life for all of us, right? We all take risks every single day. It's just that, you know, So wait, are you asking age, me that question? Because, like, my answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I could have told based on the, yeah, I could tell. But, uh, <laughs> and every parent's answer is no. <laughs> the other thing just to mention is that I think, you know, as parents, there's sort of a, a fine line between protecting our young people, right, by insulating them and making sure they don't go past that particular line uh, versus preparing them, right, and saying, okay, if they do eventually get past that line, like, what do they need to know? What do they need to be able to do? And we need to do both and as parents, right? Because if we just veer on one side or the other, we're not going to uh, do our, our full job. That's a fair thing to say. Well, uh, how about, <laughs> it is fair. We may not like it, but it is fair. When you speak with, with teens, do you find that there is certain language that would be more convincing <laughs> as, you know, as, as the, well, you're the healthcare provider as the parent. Like, so an example, underage drinking, right? We know that telling them, oh, you well, you know it's illegal. You're 16, you're 17, you're 14, whatever. That doesn't work for most teens. Is there something that does work? Yeah, I think there's a few different things I would suggest. Um, you know, one thing to start off with is before you become directive, by which I mean like try to move them in a particular direction with your words, you want to simply sort of join them where they are and stay there fairly neutral just to understand better where they're coming from. And, uh, you know, this sounds obvious, but it's very easy to, uh, to sort of just bypass this critical step. You know, as a healthcare provider, I often uh, sort of say to our residents that, you know, the number one reason why a young person comes into the office, we give them what we consider really good advice, but then they leave the office and don't do the thing that we suggested they do. The number one reason why they don't take our advice is because they don't believe truly that we understand their reality, right? They might take our advice and say, hey, yeah, that sounds good generically, right? If, if Dr. Chung says, hey, you know, alcohol has this particular risk, they might be like, yeah, I don't actually disagree with that. But that advice is not relevant to me because you haven't heard me out. You don't know where I'm coming from. Or for instance, if a young person's uh, smoking weed, cannabis, this is, you know, a, a very common conversation. You know, I might say, oh, you know, we does this, that, and the other thing to teens in general. Uh, but the young person's thinking in their mind, you know, Dr. Chung, he doesn't know how stressed I am. Like, he doesn't know how, how good it makes me feel. Or he doesn't know just how um, uh, I need to, to be with my friends and how important those relationships are or, or whatever else, right? Dr. Chung doesn't know my reality and therefore his generic advice doesn't apply. And so the first thing is to kind of stay with the teen and understand, you know, what are the good things that they're getting from the risk that they're considering or that they're actually uh, participating in. 
And to the extent possible, validating, saying, you know what, I even say this in the office sometimes, you know, I understand actually why you're using that particular thing or doing that particular, I, I kind of get it, you know, uh, because you're so uh, stressed or because of this particular need. And, and, and by saying that, which sounds weird as a healthcare professional, but by validating their decision to some extent, uh, you're saying you're not, you're not merely dumb or you're not merely out of control or whatever the stereotypes we might be, have of teenagers, right? Because then if you validate where, they're, where they are right now, they're open to you then kind of entering and saying, and saying, despite that though, you know, may I offer something different to consider? And so helping them to say, okay, Dr. Chung actually understands where I'm coming from, that then opens them up to hearing the advice because it's personally relevant and applicable to them. Such a different way of looking at it. I wonder if it's harder if you're the parent versus the doctor. Like, you know, you have a history of not doing that. And today you listen to this and you go home and you try to do that with your kid and they roll their eyes like, you know, where'd you get that advice from? (laughs) Yeah, it's tricky. And, And I think as a doctor, I think, you know, we have this privileged position, right? Because we are singularly focused on the health of the young person and we simply give advice and try to guide them in that direction. Whereas parents, I think, have a much more multifaceted responsibility to their young person, right? And so it's not always easy to validate things we consider risky or negative. But I do think it helps to at least get a little closer to the young person where they are versus simply being outside the bounds of their defenses, right? I think the other thing just to sort of say is that even if this uh, is a complete sort of 180 from your typical interaction with your young person. I do think that young people care in general. I do think young people care about how their parents are feeling and the distress that they feel uh, related to some of these uh, more difficult choices and circumstances. And so sharing that in a very personal way can be helpful. Just saying, you know, I know this is really hard and I know there's a lot of things going on. I can understand why you did the thing that you did, um, but I love you. And it really concerns me. And I I honestly don't know what to do with that, you know, but I I want you to know that the things I'm saying and the things I'm doing, it's an expression of my love and care for you. Sometimes I don't know how to do that well, but I'm at least going to kind of tell you that. And I think a lot of times parents, you know, we may not be great at that, right? Um, We're better at sort of telling them things without explaining the why uh, behind the thing. And so... We're um, awesome you know, at those that. are a couple of things that sometimes are. <laughs> pa- parents are different for sure, right? We're painting with broad brushes. So some parents are wonderful, of course, and, uh, but oftentimes it's not the case. I think that language is really helpful. I mean, I think, you know, when we, we love when we get a script from the expert because making that pivot is so challenging, but being handed the, the script makes it possible for us. So that, I think that that was really helpful for me. We also get to hear from a lot of parents from this place of like a sense of betrayal by their kid, like that it's being done on purpose. It might be that they're angry at their parent and so they're doing it to piss them off or it's just to break the rule, just for the the pure joy of breaking the rule. So like, do you ever wonder if less is more for our kids? Like, is that a real motivator that I want to make my parent, I want my parent to know how mad I am, so I'm going to do this. And if we pull back on the rule, does that take the joy out of it? Yeah, it's a good question. I do think that there are some cases for sure where young people may do a particular thing simply for the impact it has on somebody else, right? Their parent or their guardian or, or 
maybe even a peer or something like that. That sort of motivation is is not uncommon. But I would say probably, I mean, again, there's not a way to definitively state this, but I would say probably that's more the exception than the rule in terms of where these behaviors are coming from. You know, again, I do think that more often than not, it's it's what we started with, which, which is the allure, the attraction of that sensation seeking, the novelty, the excitement of it all, and that interfacing with their real intrinsic need to explore and to understand and learn, right? So that's really kind of the driver of most of these types of risks. But there are some where maybe um, it's not the first time they've done the thing, right? So it's, it's no longer truly novel. It's just, it's just risky now, you know? It's just like a, an unhealthy behavior or whatever. And they may may do it again or stick to it, um, not just because of what they personally derive, but the impacts on others. For sure, I think that can happen. Now, whether that's super common or whether that's a generalizable thing, I, you know, I would I would probably doubt that. Frankly, I think it's more often related to the teen themselves rather than uh, something centering on the parents. In terms of sort of the the rules and regulations, and you all are are more expert on this than me certainly, but we often talk about you know the balance between rules and uh, providing that freedom, right? The ability for young people to actually interpret the world around them and make decisions within certain bounds so that they can, you know, figure things out and they can struggle and learn to cope and get up and try something different. And so we talk a bit about, you know, authoritative parenting, right? Which is parenting that is uh, engaged enough and collaborative enough with the young person so you understand where they're coming from, but within very consistent and clear bounds to protect at least against, you know, true safety concerns. And so I do think trying to remove regulations that are merely created to to help us, right, to kind of sleep better at night, you know, that are just for our sake. And really as a parent being discerning about, okay, is that truly necessary for my young person's well-being or is it just so that I can feel better? Not that that latter is, is, is not a valid reason, but if there's too much of that, certainly, and we're, and we're kind of stifling the young person underneath our own need to feel safe and secure as parents, you know, that could be um, undermining, certainly. So let's stay with this theme of not necessarily helping our sleep. <laughs> so you, you mentioned we should ask our kids, like, well, what, what is the opportunity you're seeking with risk? What is it exactly that you're looking for? Help me as the parent understand why would that be helpful for me to know? You know, if we think about like how you scripted us before, help me understand how I could really get into that headspace, you know, kind of next to them and understand them. Why why is that helpful for me as the parent? Yeah, it's really critical because, you know, perhaps most importantly, the young person, if, if you have that conversation and they have the opportunity to share their perspective and you, you know, clearly show them that you hear and understand and then hopefully validate to the extent that you can, where the young person's coming from, that is a very important aspect of any engagement if there's hope of modifying the decision and the behavior ultimately, right? Because if they don't feel heard and understood, then like I said before, you know, your advice or your guidance isn't going to necessarily be relevant. And so, yeah, coming in and asking those questions, you know, I hear you're thinking about this or I, I see that you've done that. You know, what were you hoping might happen from this? You know, help me understand because I would love to uh, figure out how can we do it better next time. Or, you know, I expressed my concern about this and I'm hoping to find something else that might give you that exact same thing. So 
so recognizing that young people aren't, again, out of risk and just kind of doing things on a whim necessarily, but oftentimes coming from just a different vantage point with a different calculus in mind. And you as a parent coming in to try to understand where they're coming from is very validating and can also equip you to partner with them to find alternatives, right? If the thing that they're, if they're trying to do or hoping to do just isn't acceptable. Um, and that's where it's sort of the positive risk piece can come in, right? To say, okay, you know, my young person was thinking about this potential negative thing, but it wasn't actually that they wanted just to do that exact thing, but they were seeking this particular experience or this particular outlet. You know, what is something that's adjacent to that that I would consider less risky or even maybe overtly positive that I can, you know, show them and introduce to them maybe as a surrogate uh, for that other thing, you know? So that you can't really kind of do some of that supporting supportive work unless you first understand where they're coming from like you said that's great i love that help me understand that's a that, I, it, it puts you in the seat next to them that's right and I, and i think you know the other part of that is that young people are sort of elevated to being a partner with you right um and that's not a common experience for a lot of young people with their parents um and when you ask them curious questions and you ask them to help you understand them, they're actually in that conversation an expert, right? Because they're the only one that actually understands where they're coming from. (laughs) And so you need their help, actually, which I think is uh, a positive experience for most young people and feels empowering and allows for that more of a collaborative uh, spirit in that conversation rather than something that's like the classic parent-child directive conversation. The healthy discussion that we're going to have with our kids it may not lead to the outcome that we hope for as parents because our kids may still, if I look at alcohol, for example, you know, it became clear in my house that it was happening. And so the approach was, let's do it safe as safely as we can, which I think is controversial for a lot of people, but that was our decision that we weren't going to stop it from happening. But if you find yourself where you need a ride, call us with no consequences if you're uncomfortable in a situation. So how do we kind of come to those places where as parents, we kind of back down on the thing, like I thought the right answer was no drinking, right? But I know that I'm not getting to that point. How irresponsible was that? Or is that a healthy way to navigate? I do think that is a healthy way to navigate because it it's complicated. You know, I do think that it's important as a caring adult, whether a parent or in my role as a healthcare professional, to always say what you mean, right? To, and, and to always come back to that, by which I mean, it's okay to say, I hope you wouldn't drink. That, that's like my hope still, right? And I'm not going to actually waver from that because that's still true, actually. I wish you wouldn't drink. But then saying, however, if you do choose to, at the very least, I want you to be safe. And this is how we're going to kind of do that. And so sort of sticking to, sort of standing your ground in terms of ultimately what you hope for for your young person and so that there's no uh, ambiguity around that, but then uh, placing that within the realities of of what they might uh, do and ensuring that, like you suggested, that there are certain safeguards. Um, and, And that practice of the no-fault call in the middle of the night, you know, no questions asked. I think it's wonderful. I think it's really important and critical. And that very likely reduces the likelihood of some of these uh, 
particularly negative uh, outcomes related to alcohol use. And so, so I think it's a combination, both and, right? Saying what you mean, standing your ground in that regard, but then uh, sort of playing that out so that you have uh, several layers uh, of protection uh, against these really negative outcomes. Um, and as you stated, I think that's a great approach. So you talk about contextualizing risk. What does that mean? Yeah, I think first it's recognizing, number one, that not all risks are bad, right? So kind of uh, understanding the behavior, um, but then playing the behavior out in multiple directions and recognizing that, you know, climbing half dome, let's kind of come back to that, right? You know, that, that there are ways to frame that as like a negative risk if somebody's completely unprepared and it's just, you know, uh, seems like a, just a reckless decision or if somebody is seemingly prepared and could have this really positive outcome. So, so that's one piece. And then also recognizing that the risks that we try to avoid are not not simply so that a young person can get through adolescence unscathed, right? So that they can kind of break even or remain neutral. The risks that we try to avoid are actually so that they can experience the positive side of life, right? And I'll just take a very clinical example, right? We do a lot of sexual reproductive health work with young people. And we try to prevent pregnancies that weren't planned or expected. And we try to prevent infections, right? Um, and we do all sorts of things in counseling young people and that sort of thing. But we do all of that work not just so that they don't have those negative experiences. It's so that they can have the flip side, which is a positive, safe, healthy sexual experience over time, right? And so I think it's really important to always recognize that all of the risks that we're trying to snuff out and prevent altogether, there are these kind of counterposed positive things, um, which is really the hoped-for uh, aspiration of it all, and, and that's why we do that work. You know, I, I I talk with a lot of parents, and I remember one a couple months ago, and and I asked the the mom of this young young woman, you know, what is your hope for your daughter? And she said something like, you know, I just hope she gets to 21 without getting pregnant. Uh, without, you know, getting addicted to something and without, you know, some major injury. Like she said, something analogous to that, right? Which is basically the, you know, I hope she gets through unscathed uh, sort of narrative. And the conversation we had was that, that, yeah, for sure, at the very least, like that should be our, you know, bare minimum goal. But there's so much more to this, right? You know, we want to avoid those things so that she can have a positive relationship, so that she can stay in school, so that she can do all of these other things, right? And so adolescence is not just about avoiding these landmines just so we can kind of make it to daybreak. It's so that they can uh, enjoy the richness of the rest of adolescence, which is positive development and positive growth that is unhindered by these kind of negative outcomes. And so I think that for me as a parent myself and also as a clinician is what helps me come back to these conversations over and over again. That it's not me just running around trying to like extinguish something with a fire extinguisher, which can become tiresome uh, at the end of the day. It's because of these positive things that we're trying to move towards um, by virtue of, of trying to snuff out these risks. I'm so comforted by this whole conversation and I think we focus so much on the, the risk that teenagers take that we don't really talk about the teenagers that don't take risk. And in fact, if I'm the parent of a teenager who doesn't take risk, I kind of feel elated, like I did something right. But is there, now that we've talked about all the, the great things about risk and how that propels us toward, toward adulthood and, and the things we love in life, What's the downside of having a kid who doesn't take risks? 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think for sure, if a young person kind of you know stays at home, reads a book, never thinks about half dome, you know, I think the the parent probably feels like they won the lottery, <laughs> you know, just because. Um, but like I said, you know, risk taking, sensation seeking, doing novel things. This is what we consider kind of uh, normative and healthy in adolescence. And I do think that all teens have their own ways of experiencing risk and sensation seeking. And it may not look like the classical formulation, right? Something that's obviously physically dangerous or obviously emotionally dangerous or whatever. It could look very different for young people, right? So, you know, if somebody has a a different persona and temperament and personality or a different friend group or a different uh, array of activities that they're interested or even a different identity uh, in terms of how they think about themselves in the world, uh, a risk might be, you know, submitting a letter to the editor or, you know, writing a poem and trying to get it published. Like these, these seem like fairly, hum, you know, ho-hum kind of um, muted activities. But for that young person, it could represent a real risk, right? Because if they, just taking the poetry example, if, if that young person has developed this identity that I'm a poet and I'm going to do this, and that's like a huge risk for them, right? And so, so I think, you know, Assuming that young people are seeking sensation and, and novelty and excitement and uncertainty and trying to figure out how they're getting it, and then uh, to the extent that they're already doing things that are positive, pro-social, and, and edifying for them, really like helping them to lean into that, and to the extent that they're finding negative, potentially risky ways to do that, uh, trying to redirect or to supplant that with something else. Um, but yeah, I think assuming that teens are, are, are risky in their own way, it may not be obvious to you on the surface, though. So our last question that we ask all of our guests, what is the biggest myth about teenagers? I think there's so many, actually. And I actually think that the mythology around teens, these uh, sort of assumptions that we make or the stereotypes that we operate underneath, I think are a huge part of why so many young people struggle, frankly, because those stereotypes or those myths are how we set up structures around them and programs that ostensibly are supposed to support them and how we as adults interact with them, right? And so so I think it's a great question is is my first response. There are a few things I would say, if if that's okay. I think one that we come up with often in the clinical setting is the idea that teens um, just don't care. You know, so often a common scenario is a teen comes in and, you know, maybe one of our, our residents is trying to engage them around a health behavior and the teen's just not giving them the time of day. And very often, you know, the resident might say, oh, you know, this teen clearly doesn't care. You know, they're just not willing to talk about it, whatever. But I have not met a young person who truly does not care about themselves and who truly does not actually want to be well. More often than not, it's not apathy, but it's more ambivalence, right? Um, and that there's a huge difference between apathy, truly being devoid of care and concern, and ambivalence, see, simply being torn, right? And being kind of twisted in knots and not sure how to engage and what to do. So that's the one thing, is if a young person is not engaging around a conversation, assuming that they do care, uh, they're just not ready, or they're just not sure how to engage uh, productively. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, there's the assumption that, all teens feel invincible, you know, that that's a part of their armor that makes them forge ahead into into these incredible risks. And I do think there's maybe to some extent that is true for some young people, or they they at least forget their vulnerability. But, But I think in general, most teens, most days, most hours of the day feel more vulnerable than invincible. Uh, They just don't all often show it, right? Um, And so, 
for a parent recognizing that even if a young person has kind of this sort of surface level invincibility, recognizing that they are soft and squishy on the inside and, and incredibly vulnerable in their own ways. And then the last thing I would say, and one of you alluded to this earlier, is that um, the vast majority of young people actually do well. You know, I think we have this notion that every teen is smoking or every teen is, you know, speeding down the highway or whatever. Um, and these things certainly happen. But that stereotype comes about because these behaviors emerge first and most conspicuously during this time, but it's not because of the sheer numbers of young people who are doing these things. Like the vast majority of young people do well. And I think sort of anchoring yourself to that reality and to that hope and saying, you know what, like despite the risks that I'm perceiving, most likely this will turn out okay. I just need to do my due diligence and do the best I can as a parent. And hopefully that's reassuring, right? We still need to do what we need to do. We need to sort of, um, you know, buffer against these potential negative outcomes, but rest assured that most teens with the right supports, uh, with the right care and concern do turn out okay. And that's the hopefulness of this. Dr. Richard Chung, thank you, first of all, for helping us love our teenagers a little bit more and for giving us language to have these really hard conversations. They come from such a place of worry as parents and you've helped take that down for us. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about your team with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.